the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Parents struggle with, well, several sets of questions when the kids reach that inquisitive age. Uh, Certainly, I think most parents shudder at the notion of having to have the talk. You know, the one I'm referring to, the birds and the bees talk. And um, largely feel that they are um, wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that the kiddies will offer up. And, of course, it becomes challenging and problematic. We can't rely on the public school system to provide our kids with sex education. And um, and if they learn it from their peers, uh, it's going to form some very unhealthy relationships and very um, unhealthy lifestyles, potentially. Along with that, I think for Christian parents, there also can be that equal sense of being wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that our kids pose as they are exploring the claims of Christ and their faith. It is more than just simply saying, because the Bible said so, and, you know, sort of taking the God said it, I believe it, that settles it approach. Um, The kids want real answers, to have a real faith. God has no stepchildren. We understand that. But how can you be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may pose regarding their faith and Christianity? Well, Dr. Alex McFarland joins us. He is the author of a number of best-selling books on a variety of topics. He also serves as a radio talk show host. He's director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. And in addition to all of the wonderful books that he has written, the latest one is one that you will want to have handy on your top shelf. It's called simply, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It really is a thrill to be on with you. I'm deeply grateful. Is this a parallel that I draw between uh, sometimes the awkwardness that parents feel in answering questions regarding sexuality, the birds and the bees, equally up there with questions regarding faith? I mean, when when your kid comes to you straight-faced and says, Daddy or Mommy, why does God allow suffering? Boy, you know, we we tend to kind of come with the platitudes, but we don't always have the strong theological response that the kids really need, do we? Yeah, I think that's a great parallel that you draw. Um, Moms and dads get nervous about having the talk, you know, regarding sexuality. And I think they procrastinate and, and sometimes push away opportunities to talk about deep spiritual matters as well. 
And, you know, for a lot of reasons, not only culturally but scripturally, uh, moms and dads need to be able to help their kids process the, the questions about God and Christianity and spiritual growth that uh, are natural, that, that kids will ask. You know, we're, we're inquisitive creatures, and we're spiritually inquisitive as well. And sometimes mom and dad uh, avoid those types of questions, or they'll, they'll reprimand their kids and say, you know, you shouldn't ask things like that. Uh, maybe because they themselves don't really know a good, solid answer. So the book is designed to equip moms and dads. It's a fun book. I mean, there's, there's questions kids ask me that were funny, poignant, touching, probing. Uh, and so there are many questions from interviews that we did with about 111 children. I'm curious if there is a degree to this in which parents are sometimes awkward or reluctant um, or feel chagrined at answering questions because their own base knowledge is a bit lacking. And I pose that question because there are parents that I know that have, uh, on the topic of the birds and the bees, kind of taken the, you know... with sexuality as complicated as it is these days, I don't know. I was raised in the 50s. Things have changed so much. I, I'm just maybe more content to allow the kids, who are smart kids, to go out and explore and find the answers on their own. Is, is that approach dangerous, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters? Well, it is, Craig, because for one thing, it, it's communicating a message to your children that these things just really aren't that important. I mean, you know, if if they really were that significant, you know, mom and dad would have taken the time to carve out an answer or to, you know, get a handle on on a good perspective. But um, you know, really, Christianity uh, is a it's a faith system that has good answers to the questions. Uh, we have good evidence for the claims of Christ, but Christianity is a, a, a relationship driven. Uh, faith, uh, not only our relationship with the Lord Jesus, but um, passing it on, evangelism and discipleship and the spiritual mentoring of children. It's, it's, I guess, for lack of a better word, I would call it life-on-life transference. And who better to inform the spiritual perspective of children, who better to do that than mom and dad? But, you know, the old thing, you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, If there's going to be transference and life-on-life, you know, discipleship, mom and dad have to have a a robust faith of their own. And so we talk about that in the book, that, um, you know, the opportunity to answer your kids' questions, you know, might be really a, a reminder to drill down deeply uh, in your own life, mom and dad. And and obviously, you know, sometimes the inclination toward um, being dismissive, um, minimizing the importance of what might seemingly be a benign question to you that, in fact, is a deep, searching, probative question for a young person who... Yes, baby, raised in church, and you had a family altar in the evenings, you know, uh, many families that will spend uh, moments in the Bible every night together, things of this sort, particularly when the kids are younger. And You thought you've done everything that you can do to help establish a firm foundation in their faith, and in fact, they've just been kind of going through the paces or the motions and are now beginning to ask the tough questions that at some point in life all of us ask of what God, who God, where God, why God, uh, what of sin, what of salvation, what of my 
my relationship to God, who is Jesus Christ, things of this sort. Our children deserve these answers because God, as we say, has no stepchildren, and they will not. Uh, uh, these kids cannot uh, vicariously live out their relationship of, uh, with Christ through you. So, how can we be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may ask regarding Christianity? Doctor Alex McFarland is with us tonight to help illuminate on all these matters. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed. And back to the conversation tonight. Dr. Alex McFarland is with us. You know him as the author of a number of New York Times best-selling books, including 10 Answers for Skeptics, uh, Core Truths You Must Know for an Unshakable Faith, uh, 10 Common Questions or Objections, rather, to Christianity, and now his latest book, The 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. Let's get to your calls. We're going to lead off first for Dr. McFarland in Sonoma. Aaron, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Alex McFarland. Hi there. Certainly, I've been a parent for seven years now. We've got little ones and our faith, my husband and I, has really you know strengthened and solidified in so many ways and we're just on our own journey and with our kids, it's a beautiful thing and I, I feel really blessed and, and really grateful but the most challenging part of parenthood for me that I would love to hear your perspective on is not so much the interaction that I have with my kids because I feel like we're learning and growing together every day. But my my uh, husband and I growing up in Christian households have parents that look at us in a way that and, and expect us to behave in a way and teach our children in the same way that they have taught us, and we're not the same people. And so with our family and with other folks, it's just the most challenging part of parenthood. Are you talking about in the sense of what, like certain traditions or just um, uh, parenting styles? Overall, you know, like when I was pregnant with my second child, my mom asked me, you know, do you really believe? And, you know, they sort of think like if I don't express it in the same way, then it must not be correct or you know what I mean? Like, I might not be passing it on. And uh, my father-in-law said, you know, we're really the godparents for children. Um, as if we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> or, I mean, of course, everybody, it takes a village for sure. But, you know, these things that are passed on, I think it's important to realize that as much as we have the common um, faith and common denominators, we're all on our own journey and path, and we sort of have to respect how we're doing this, you know, and being really careful that our children will come up in their time, but we do have to leave them, and we can't let go, and we have to guide them, you know, at least until they're 18, but I'm sure it goes on and on and on, you know, that's the... Oh yeah! Ask, ask any parent with kids in their forties and fifties, and they'll and they'll tell you that. So, all right, uh, let's uh, let's turn to Doctor McFarland for a response. Uh, Alex, this of course is a predicament. Oftentimes, uh, parents may have a certain parenting style or a manner in which they feel the spiritual legacy should be uh, passed on, and all of a sudden they see their own kids with kids of their own, and maybe they're not insisting that they be involved in uh, Royal Rangers or whatever the case might be. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Well, you, you know, um, salvation is the same for all people in that we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, but Christian growth is kind of different for, for all people. You know, what 
um, is a catalyst in the Christian growth of one person, um, God might use something different to spiritually mature another person. And so I want to say a big word of encouragement to the caller and to all moms and dads that, um, you know, uh, there, there will be no shortage of people to give advice or even to be sometimes critical, but don't let that discourage you and don't let that... Uh, make you second-guess yourself just by virtue of being mom and dad. Uh, just genetically, you've got home court advantage, uh, and nobody can nobody can influence the spiritual direction of a child like the parent. Um, it, you know, it's very poignant in um, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 13, where the Word of God um, says, you know, when it comes to pass that your son will ask you, why do we do these things? Then you will say, when Pharaoh would not let us go, God, with a strong hand, brought us out. And, and it kind of the implication is that your children will look to mom and dad and say, hey, I, I want what you've got. So I would say, um, be in the Word, be in prayer. Uh, you make sure that you're walking with Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit do the driving. And over time and through circumstances and just consistent, authentic Christian living, uh, God will, God will um, steer you in the way that you can best be the Christian parent that your children need. Is it a difference, Alex, between sort of um, forcing our children into the Christian mold versus modeling our own faith? You know, the do as I do versus do as I don't, uh, you know, the don't do as I do, do as I say kind of scenario. Uh, it's very much modeling, I think, that, that is the, the winning uh, approach. My friend Josh McDowell, uh, who I'll be with him Thursday and Friday in Texas, actually, but Josh says, you know, rules without relationship breeds rebellion. Mm -hmm. and, and just a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, while it's important to have standards, but just a list of, of do's and don'ts uh, won't cut it. I, I think legalism has created more skeptics and atheists than all the uh, naturalistic philosophers. Well, and I think we all know cases. I certainly can cite them from uh, my uh, my sphere of, uh, of acquaintances where parents on some occasion would insist that the child go to Sunday school and things of this sort. They themselves, however, not fully to participate. And then when the child is, uh, you know, of age, 18, moves out of the house and suddenly, you know, um, uh, dumps church and never wants to go back, wonders, well, what happened? You know, it's got to be, like you say, modeled so that the old saying, more is caught than taught. Now, there does need to be some good intellectual content. Uh, there needs to be substantive answers to the questions, and that's what we do in the book. We try to give good answers, uh, age-appropriate answers, because in, in the 111 children I interviewed, we, we would notice that the questions of a 5-, 6-, 7-year-old uh, were different than the questions of a 10, 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a pre-adolescent. Pre so it's a combination of both. But even, um, let, me, let me say mom and dad, you don't, don't feel like, um, gee, I, I'd better be a, a theologian, um, you know, to be able to speak into the lives of my children. Oftentimes, just the, the, the visual that mom and dad love Jesus, that they're walking with the Lord, and uh, there is there is a good answer to all the questions, even if if I don't know what it is. Um, but there's there's just a trust 
that seems to be bred in the heart of a child when they see mom and dad consistently, authentically living out their faith. And then there'll come time when you can have the the conversations like we talked about, the spiritual coming-of-age conversations. But, um, you know, I would say mom and dad, one of the most potent apologetics that you can set forth before the watching eyes of your kids is your own authentic committed walk with Jesus Christ every single day. This is sort of the uh, the Pauline follow me as I follow Christ approach? Absolutely. Dr. Alex McFarland with us tonight. He, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. He is also the host of Explore the Word radio program, nationally syndicated. Um, he has traveled and spoken to over a thousand churches during his apologetics career and um, written a number of best-selling books. No doubt this one destined to be the next bestseller. 21 toughest questions your kids will ask about Christianity. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland, his new book, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. By the way, the book available through the usual suspects, meaning uh, Bay Area bookstores. I guess think there's one or two of those that still exist. Amazon.com and also through uh, Dr. McFarland's website, 21toughestquestions.com. And that's spelled out, I mean, uh, enumerated. 2121toughestquestions.com. Do some parents in your experience, Dr. McFarland, feel threatened when their kids start to approach them, particularly as a child gets to be of age, you know, uh, early teens, things of that sort? And here you've been dutiful in terms of taking the kids to school, to Sunday school and church, and you really thought you've done everything right, and you feel firm that your child has a strong uh, faith experience, and then they come start asking these very fundamental questions. Do parents sometimes get defensive on that? Uh, yeah, they do. And and let me say this: uh, I'm not, you know, bashing mom and dad or being critical. But not only do moms and dads sometimes get defensive, but sometimes they just make excuses. And you know, in doing all these interviews, um, periodically I would hear moms and dads say. You know, oh my goodness! You know, I'm not a theologian. I, you know, I've never been to seminary. I'm I'm just a mom and a dad. And you know, let me say this: to shape the spiritual lives of your kids, you don't have to be a theologian. But before God and uh, in the sight of of the Lord and the church, um, in the home, uh, parents are called to be the spiritual drivers of the family, really. And so uh, I, I challenge moms and dads in the book, you know, avoid the deer in the headlights look. You know, when, you're, when your children ask things like, you know, did the baby Jesus wear diapers? Or if God made everything, who made God? Uh, and how does God hear the prayers of all the people in the world at once? You know, things like that. One little boy asked the question, uh, you know, my pastor says Jesus and Satan are fighting. What are they fighting with? Lasers? You, you know, um, you know. Use use these these wonderful opportunities to show that uh, the the questions have answers. Um, but let me say this: oftentimes, I think in in recent decades of Christianity, there's the assumption that uh, I pray the sinner's prayer 
Lord, come into my life and save me. Amen. And that's it. And I wait around five more decades, and someday I'll die. Um, and just getting saved is the end of the equation. Um, there's also the um, kind of the, the assumption, you know, if, I, if my child goes to youth group or Sunday school, check that box off. Uh, the duty is done, and that's the end of my job. And it, it's it's so much more than that. And what a what a wonderful opportunity it is. But you know, Second uh, Peter one sixteen says we have not followed cleverly devised fables. Um, the gospel is not faith alone. It is faith, but it's a faith validated by compelling lines of evidence. So it's it's not just that we're going to resolve to believe a myth in spite of the evidence. No, we, we can defend our faith because of the great evidence. And so mom and dad uh, embrace this wonderful calling, this wonderful opportunity, because in you know, prepping to build spiritual champions out of your children, uh, you yourself will probably grow and mature and your love of Jesus uh, and your confidence in Him will 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 grow as well. In that sense, then, is it better when a child presents a theological question that we may not feel fully comfortable in asking, especially if they, you know, come into something that's that's fairly deep, and we feel like we're just ill-equipped? Is it better to say I don't know than to lie or to uh, you know try and make something up? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't snow job a child. They'll see it from a mile away. And and certainly don't uh, just make up a lie because they'll be on the Internet and they'll, they'll find out the truth. You know, um, know this, that, that we live in a time of so much information that if you don't uh, proactively give the answers and chart the course, uh, your kids will find a spiritual roadmap somewhere and it might not be the right one and so um, it's perfectly fine in fact it's really healthy sometimes when the parent says hey that's a that's a great question you know uh give me a couple of days and together let's let's work through this together but um you know there is mystery even uh the deepest christian i mean think of you know think of somebody like a billy graham or or uh David Jeremiah or the great Christian leaders that we look up to, uh, there's still things that they are learning, and there's still mystery. Um, there's so much we do know, and then there are things that uh, this side of heaven will never know. And so uh, let, let your sons and daughters know that uh, Christianity is, is concrete, but it's abstract. I mean, we know Jesus died and rose again. Uh, there's an empty tomb. He literally was nailed to a cross to pay for our sins. So there, there's much about the faith that is concrete and uh, and provable and documentable. But then there, then there are things like, um, you know, when will Jesus come back? We, we just don't know. Um, why does a good, godly, faithful Christian family suffer the loss of a loved one? Um, why can a faithful Christian get laid off of their job? Uh, you know, we don't know all the answers, but we know God is faithful. You know, C.S. Lewis, Craig, C.S. Lewis said um, regarding the death of his own wife, 
And here's a guy that had given much of his adult life to defending the faith, and he lost his wife. His wife passed away. And Lewis uh, wrote, uh, God, I know now why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions flee away. And so it's okay for a mom and dad to say, you know what, son, I don't really know, but I'll try to find out. But there, there are hard, concrete facts, and then there are there, there are areas of mystery where we have to trust God. And then, too, aren't we, don't we need to be sensitive in terms of the degree of maturity of the child, both from a spiritual standpoint and an age standpoint? I mean, that, that whole milk-to-meat thing. I mean, I have seen some parents who, for example, are big fans in the study of eschatology and uh, the dispensationalism. They've got down pat. Uh, explaining to a child uh, sin, death, judgment, damnation, sin, salvation, sanctification. The child knows nothing of that, but mom or dad drags the kids off to every single conference on eschatology they can get their hands on. That, that's true. That's true. And you know what? Uh, steak is a wonderful thing, but if you cram it down the throat of an infant, uh, it probably will choke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've got to say this, um, from preaching in 1,400 churches and being president of a seminary, uh, I love the body of Christ, and I love believers of all strata, but um, there are believers that um, are, you know, straight as an arrow theologically, but as, as empty as, as as a bank vault uh, as far as their heart and their joy and like so much of, of the Christian life um, there, there's got to be a balance there's, there's um, learning and knowledge and content and data but then there's, there's trust and waiting on God and uh, you know we don't want to make the Bible say less than what it says but we don't want to make the Bible say more than what it says um, and that, that balance of having standards but not being legalistic um, knowing that we're free in Christ but that doesn't mean that we're free to go and, and sin uh, with no restraint and so um, you know I was in Colorado Craig speaking at a men's retreat and doing some of this content while the book was in process about a year and a half ago because I spent over two years on this one book and, uh, you know, I was talking about being a godly man and a husband and a father. And uh, uh, during the break, a man came up and he said, you know, Alex, I hear you. This is great. You know, but I mean, the kind of disciple you're talking about to love Jesus and love the family. And first Peter, you know, lay down your life for your spouse. And, you know, the kind of Christian you're talking about, I mean, that would be like, like every day, 24-7. And I'm like, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's what God calls us to, to uh, give him 100%. And so uh, more than ever in this culture, in this milieu, uh, that's what we Christians are called to do, to give Jesus our all. And it will bear fruit in the lives of the next generation, our kids uh, who follow after us. 
And certainly in the process of giving all to Christ and training up a child in the way that he should go. Uh, wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. And not only can be a great primer for mom and dad uh, when the questions arise, but also take you deeper, foundationally speaking, into your own faith. The book, again, is available at um, 21toughestquestions.com. That's the number 21, 21toughestquestions.com. Com or, of course, Amazon.com. And as always, our thanks and appreciation for his time and the insights. Dr. Alex McFarland, Christian Worldview and Apologetics Director at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. An interesting new book out that examines America's enemies and our use of love for the underdog that ultimately trashes America and American power is penned by Michael Prell. Michael is a columnist with the Washington Times. You can also read his musings at townhall.com. He served as crisis manager for the 2003 Northeastern blackout and a strategist for the Tea Party Patriots and has authored now a new book and called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the underdog to trash American power. And, uh, Michael, good to have you on the program tonight. Thank you for having me here, Craig. I appreciate it. Uh, first, define, if you would, for us the title here. We know what the underdog is. In fact, American, I think largely Americans, have always enjoyed rooting for the underdog. Uh, but when you speak of underdogma in your book title, what do you mean by that? Well, you're right. America was founded on an underdog uprising against a more powerful adversary, the British. But underdogma is far different. Underdogma is the widespread and corrosive belief that in any given issue, whichever side has less power, the underdog, is automatically considered righteous simply because they have less power. And whichever side has more power, like America, is automatically considered wrong simply because they have more power. And it doesn't matter which side is actually right or wrong. All that matters to those who practice under dogma is which side has less or more power. And in my book, I show how this under dogma shapes many of the issues that shape our world today. And I answer the question, I ask the question, you know, why is it that some Americans embrace American power and American exceptionalism while others feel the need to bow down and apologize for it? And then finally, I give readers the tools to fully embrace the idea of American exceptionalism unapologetically and to beat back and defeat this corrosive belief system that I've called under dogma. Let's spend some time analyzing this. You mentioned about the very roots of America that is the triumph of the the underdog over the overdog, in this case, uh, the the oppressive kingdom of uh, England uh, against the, the colonialists here in America. Um, this, of course, is something that I think has kind of set the stage for an interesting, uh, interesting dichotomy here in that as we move through then the subsequent growth and expansion of the United States in through the Industrial Revolution and modern organization, and then eventually, of course, the outcome of the Second World War, uh, America uniquely has always been on on the side of being ourselves the overdog, and yet we've always tended to have kind of this soft spot in our hearts for the underdog. Well, because America was founded on that underdog uprising, it's part of the national character. But here's where underdogma is different. 
Under Dogma says that the first Americans were good because they were relatively powerless. But as soon as America became big and successful and powerful, America became bad. So power, Not- power equals bad and weakness equals good. Yeah, I describe it as an axis of power between the power-haves and the power-have-nots. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. And the big guy can do no right, even when he does right. And this is where it separates our traditional notions of right and wrong. And wipes all that out and says, no, it only tilts on whichever side has less power or more power. Right and wrong objectively don't matter. And this is where moral moral relativism comes from. Boy, not only that, but the sense of entitlement, uh, what we're seeing going on with uh, this 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 sort of the uh, the Robin Hood, you know, shift of taking from the rich and giving to the poor that we're seeing uh, just, you know, blatant throughout government today. Um, this is really a dynamic that goes beyond the, you know, simple power struggles between the United States and other nations. We're even seeing this dynamic at play within American society and certainly with the American politic. So much of the mentality that has crept into the American psyche on this topic is impacting our lives in so many levels. I mean, we've seen going back to Johnson's Great Society, the notion of entitlement creeping in, even the idea that if someone has has uh, come up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, and they've worked hard, they've gotten an education, they've sacrificed, they've put in long hours, their family has sacrificed. Now, as a result of the fruit of their labor and blessings, they have been successful at life. They've been able to enjoy a modicum of success and some wealth. All of a sudden, somebody comes in and now is of the entitlement mentality that because you have and I have not, what you have, you must give to me. Not only have we seen that dynamic play at play here, I think, in under dogma, there's also the notion that we tend to suddenly, as uh, author Michael Perel points out, Blame the overdog and immediately cast doubt on on he or she or it, um, even in the face of reality that would demonstrate that it's actually the underdog that's the evil one here. You spend some time in the book on this point. Michael, and I think one of the easiest things that we can demonstrate with this notion is a lot of what we've seen in, in particularly in mainstream, so-called mainstream and liberal media post 9-11. Uh, th- this notion that somehow, well, what's taken place here is, you know, people that are victims of Americans' foreign policy and abuse and America standing up for totalitarian regimes like the Shah of Iran for so many years and, and even supporting Saddam Hussein, at least during the time that he was at war with with our enemy Iran to the point where what happened to uh, over 3,000 people on 9-11 was not the fault of the terrorists. It was really the fault of America. And it sounds crazy until you read their own words. So let me just reset the frame for people. This belief under dogma is a reflexive belief that the little guy is good, not because he's good, but simply because he has less power. And the big guy is bad because he has more power. So in the attacks of 9-11, there's a whole chapter I dedicate to this, and it's just shocking what happened. Because when that happened, the whole under dogma equation was turned upside down. America was the underdog. And we clearly saw America's enemies were the enemies. There was absolute moral clarity for about six hours. 
And then it started to shift, and you saw this underdogma happening. And I take readers through step by step by step. So there's two parts of underdogma. Number one is the big guy must be the bad guy. Did we see that happen after 9-11? Oh, yeah. First, America was clearly the victim. And then we saw it creeping and creeping and creeping to maybe America brought it on itself. Maybe it was America's foreign policy. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. Until it got to the point where high-profile Americans were blaming America for causing this to begin with. And the other side of underdogma is to deify the underdog, no matter what he does. Just because he has less power, he must be good. And if you think it's crazy that they tried it with the terrorists, they did. They went step by step by step. I have direct quotes from mainstream American media calling Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who planned the attacks, quote, thoughtful about his cause and craft and, quote, folksy. And I have five major American media personalities who referred to the 9-11 terrorists as courageous because they had the courage to fly plane loads of innocent people into buildings filled with other innocent people. That shows you the power of under dogma to completely sidestep the rational mind and get people to do these and say these horrible, horrible things. Well, to be sure, I mean, to suggest at any level that Khalid, uh, Sheikh Khalid Mohammed, the, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks is folksy, is like suggesting that, I don't know, uh, Joseph Stalin was just kind of a teddy bear. Yeah, you know, it just misunderstood. Water a whole population. It's just bizarre. You know? where, do, where does this stem from? Because I'm old enough to remember a time in this country, Michael, when it wasn't always like this. I mean, post uh, another major event on U.S. soil, and that was the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, December seventh of forty-one. Uh, Americans didn't uh, suddenly rush to say that. Well, you know, it must have been that thing about about America cutting off Japan's steel supply so they couldn't continue expansion into China and into Korea and the other neighboring countries there in the east. That must have been the thing. It's really our fault. You didn't hear that. What's changed? There was a a tipping point, and I peg the beginning of Under Dogma to the Berkeley student protests of the mid-1960s. Now, why did it happen then? And this was when, so just to, again, reset the frame, this is not people being against bad people for doing bad things. This is people being against those who have power, even if they're virtuous. What they're doing is they're fighting the power. And in Berkeley in the 1960s, that's when the, quote, fight the power movement began. And the reason why it began at that time, and I go into a whole chapter on this, is because that was the first generation that came of age in a country that was a superpower where they didn't have to fight for sustenance and fight to get by like their parents did. They were born literally at the top of the power heap in the world. And ever since 1989, all Americans have been the only ones at the top of the power heap. So this was the first generation, and when they came of age in the 60s, they were given all this power, and suddenly they were looking around, and they started to feel queasy about it, maybe apologetic about it. And that kind of thing is a luxury only afforded people who live in relative power and safety. People around the world don't bow down and apologize for power. They want to take it from you. You know, that's the reason why I wrote this book. I mean, while some Americans take exception to American exceptionalism and American power, America's enemies have a far, far different view of power in their own words. Let's take Osama bin Laden at his word. He said their view of power is this. 
when people see the strong horse and the weak horse, by nature they will like the strong horse. That's precisely the opposite of underdogma. And, you know, one of my favorite writers is Mark Stein. And he writes about America's demographic disadvantage to its enemies. They're having more kids, we're having less. In Under Dogma, I show how those who practice Under Dogma are putting America at a philosophical disadvantage to its enemies by championing the weak horse and demonizing the strong horse. The consequences of that over time are dire for America. Well, to be sure, particularly since we're no longer using as the yardstick um, things as righteousness and morality and goodness and fairness and fair play, uh, the kind of um, the kind of measuring sticks, the yardsticks that we were taught were measurements of, of virtue and wholesomeness when we were kids. At least I certainly was. Now all of a sudden, uh, we uh, we move to the notion that it's simply based on this one size. Yeah, it almost um, almost then in the end favors the bully, doesn't it? What it does is it shows, it, it shows you the power of this belief system to literally throw out our notions of right and wrong. I mean, we've all heard of moral relativism, but it's not, it's not an accurate term because it's only relative in one direction. You don't see moral relativists automatically, instinctively, taking the side of the powerful. <laughs> it's always on the side of the little guy. They're always excusing the actions and behaviors of the little guy, saying, oh, it's because of this, because of that. No, I mean, some things are just plain wrong. Well, look, for example, uh, one of the things that, is, that has always frustrated me, and we've seen this rear its ugly head once again um, in the wake of the recent uh, recession, and that is the idea that we see people that, as uh, well, you know, so-and-so got caught stealing today, and it's because of the high unemployment in the region, and because there's a lack of parity in, in employment opportunity, and so as a result, people steal. Yeah. And I've I, argued, well, let's go back to the last time that America really suffered economically, and that was not the Great Recession, but the Great Depression, where we had 25% of the of the working public unemployed, uh, where we had no social network available, there were no uh, safety nets in place, Social Security, unemployment, none of that existed. And yet, very few incidences outside of the outlandish stuff like organized crime crime that would lead to things like, you know, the, the Ma Barker and uh, John Dillinger, you didn't see average Americans going out to steal just to feed their families. No, they went out, they sold apples and pencils on the street corner, they bartered and traded, they did what they needed to, but we didn't see America become a wholesale group of thieves. And so I would argue that when we look at thievery, it's not indicative of somebody who's who's stealing because they're hungry and trying to feed their family. It's indicative of somebody that is living in sin, that's a criminal, and as a result is behaving in a criminal fashion. Absolutely. And those people who, who dismiss it and say, well, they're just stealing because they're poor, they're profoundly insulting all the poor people in the world who don't steal. You know, I grew up poor. I'm pretty sure some people in the listening audience right now did, too. And the daily decision you make to be a good person, those who practice under dogma, throw all that out the window and say, no, 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 if you're the little guy, you can do whatever you want, and you're good. The little guy can do no wrong, even when he does wrong. That's under dogma. Now, this, we're ta- what we're talking about here is, you know, power haves and power have-nots and rich and poor. It's power imbalances. 
And one way to deal with power imbalances is to, you know, get angry or spiteful or, or turn against those who have achieved success and power and just champion the underdog, the little guy. And what you're doing is you're celebrating his weakness. That's one way to do this deal with power imbalances. That's under dogma. Michael Farrell, my guest, the book Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.